So our reading um, this morning is uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. Thanks, Sharon. Morning, everyone. If we have not met before, my name's James. I work on the staff here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. And it'd be helpful to have Romans chapter 6 open in front of you. And let's pray together as we look at God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you continue speaking to us today in your word, the Bible. Please, would you help us to listen carefully Help our hearts to be ready to hear what you have to say. And please would we see the wonderful good news that we are no longer under sin, but under grace. Help us to believe that and to live that out in Jesus' name. Amen. George Orwell's classic book, 1984, which some of us had to read at school, tells the story of what it's like to live under an evil, dominating power. The, uh, the main character, Winston, he lives in, in a state where Big Brother... The, the state power is watching him all the time. Here's how um, Orwell describes it in his book. He says, On each landing opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eye follows you about when you move. Big brother is watching you. The caption beneath it ran. The posters are everywhere in Winston's life as he walks around. He gets out of bed in the morning and the poster is there. Big Brother is watching you. He leaves his apartment and across the wall there's the poster. Big Brother is watching you. He walks down the street and there it is. Big Brother is watching you. He cannot get away from Big Brother. All of his life is lived in the shadow of his evil, dominating power. Now you can make what you will of Orwell's political message, but biblically it helps us to grasp something of what it's like to live under the power of an evil, dominating power. Paul, in this letter of Romans, has been explaining that the human experience, that all of us are born under the power of evil. If there were posters, it wouldn't say Big Brother is watching you, but there'd be this triple-headed monster of sin, death, and the law. 
Sin, death, and the law is there. And everywhere we live, we live under its power. We can't get away from it. It influences all of our lives. Sin, death, and the law are watching us. Yet unlike the ending to 1984, which sees no great liberation and rescue, Paul is been declaring the good news that through Jesus, we have been set free. Jesus has come and through his death on the cross, he has rescued us from this triple-headed beast of sin, death and the law. And he's gone through the realm, tearing down the posters that say that's watching us. And instead, he's replaced them with his own posters that bear a single word, the word grace. Grace, God's lavish, undeserved kindness given to us in Jesus. So that Christians everywhere now live under the power of grace. We wake up in the morning and the poster is there, it says grace. We go out to work, the poster is there, it says grace. Everywhere we go, we live under grace if we're a Christian. Christians have moved from under the power of sin and death and the law and into the realm of grace. If you understand that, then you really have understood the big point of Romans chapter 6. If you just look down at verse 14, you'll see how Paul concludes the passage today. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Christians have moved from under the power of sin and the law and death, and we now live under the power of grace. If last week at the end of chapter 5, we were seeing how we've moved from the, the reign of death And next time in the second half of chapter six, we'll see how we've moved from the reign of the law. Today, we're seeing how we've moved from being under the reign of sin. This week, we're seeing the glorious good news that through Jesus, the reign of sin is now over if you're a Christian. Christians no longer live under the power of sin, but under grace. And that means there is just no way a Christian would ever want to keep on sinning, living a life enslaved to sin because we are no longer under sin but under grace. Now, the passage, verses 1 to 14, it breaks down fairly simply. So there's a question in verse 1. Shall we go on sinning? Then the answer runs through verses 2 to 10. No, we've died to sin in Jesus. And then there's an application in verses 11 to 14. So offer yourself to God. So that's where we're going. Question, answer, and then application. So let's then jump in and look at the question in verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, now the question has a sort of perverse logic to it. So if you just um, glance back up at chapter 5, verse 20, partway through, you'll see that he's just explained, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That is, God's grace overabounds. No matter how much our sin has, has increased, God's grace just over increases above it. And so someone then says, well, hang a second, if God's grace keeps on increasing no matter how much we sin, then why not just keep on sinning? Because God's grace will get more and more and more and we'll just have so much grace. Isn't that good? There's this sort of perverse logic to it. But it's actually a very real question for anyone who's grasped how wonderful God's grace in chapter 1 to 5 of the book of Romans is. Paul has shown in, in great detail how even though all of us haven't lived up to God's perfect standard and we all deserve his judgment... Despite this, in love, God has sent Jesus into the world and Jesus' death has paid the penalty in full for our sins. His perfect life has been counted ours in God's sight. So Christians face no condemnation before God. We are fully and freely forgiven. It's all a gift of God's grace. 
So the question is, if we've been fully and freely forgiven, where is the motive to stop sinning? Why not just carry on? I think most commonly that the question comes from two directions. So it could either come as sort of an excuse from a a Christian. Now, you may be far more godly than I, and this has never happened to you, but if you've ever been tempted to, to sin, and the thought runs through your head, it doesn't really matter if I, whatever, sin, because God's going to forgive me anyway. It doesn't really matter because God's going to forgive me. Maybe it's just me. But do you see, God's grace, his, his forgiveness, has then become a, a motive to actually go on sinning because he's going to forgive me anyway. It could be an excuse from a Christian. Or the, the question could come as an accusation from someone who's, who's not a Christian. Um, so, so one of my best friends at university, he had um, grown up in a, in a Muslim family and he'd come over to, um, to study um, in the UK. And he wasn't hostile to Christianity. He was sort of interested in finding out um, a bit more. And so one evening, as you do at university, you're just staying up late and chatting. And he was asking lots of questions. And I was explaining the, the difference between Christianity and Islam and how Jesus' death has already paid for my sins in full and that I'm already fully and freely forgiven. And as, as he was sort of listening, the, the penny sort of dropped in his head. And he, he looked at me and said, well, I don't mean to be funny, but if God has already fully and freely forgiven you, then why bother living a good life? Surely you can just do whatever you want now. Because for him, as a Muslim, it was vitally important he did his best to live a good life. Because he thought his hope of going to heaven literally depended on it. But if God's grace in Jesus has already, fully and freely, won heaven for Christians, where is the motive to keep on living a good life? Why not carry on sinning? If we stopped right now and took 30 seconds to turn to the person next to us to answer that question that my Muslim friend gave to me, I wonder what you would say. We're not actually going to do that, but what would you say? What what would be your answer? What is the motive to stop sinning if God has already fully and freely forgiven us? Shall we go on sinning? That's the question Paul is addressing, verse 1. Now his answer runs from verses 2 to 10. And if your first instinct when you read the passage earlier was that it seems quite hard to follow and the logic's a bit confusing, a scholar I was reading earlier this week described it as one of the most complicated portions of the letter. So if you found it complicated, you're not alone. And once we're through this bit, the rest of the letter's going to be plain sailing, probably. So that's where we're going. We're going to look, work through it this way. Verse 2, verse 2 is the headline. That's his summary answer. And then there'll be four simple questions that we're going to look at that will hopefully unlock the rest of Paul's answer. So verse 2 is the headline. This is what Paul says. He says, by no means, by no means, shall we keep sinning? By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? By no means. If I could avoid getting in trouble, I'd tell you to take a pen right now and underline and put some extra exclamation marks by that by no means. The answer is no, don't. Don't keep on sinning. It doesn't make sense. But the reason why, and the, the, the summary is, because Christians have died to sin. Christians have died to sin. And if we've died to something, how does it make any sense to go on living in it? If we've died to sin, how can we keep sinning and living in sin? So that's the headline. Shall we go on sinning? No, we've died to sin. But let's try and unpack that a little bit more with these four questions which are on your sheet. So the first question, then, how have we died to sin? How have we died to sin? And we see that in verses 3 and 4. 
So Paul writes, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Notice how the the language Paul uses is about being united to Jesus, about being united to Jesus. You get it explicitly in verse 5 where he says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. But the, the idea is we've been united to Jesus. Christians are united to him, joined to him. You can think of it in these terms. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as a Christian who has a casual, sort of keep him at arm's length, only at the weekend sort of relationship with Jesus. Instead, no, there's there's a real union, a connection, a joining that every believer has with Jesus. We're joined to him. The New Testament stacks up loads and loads of images to make the point. So Christians are, are the body united to Jesus, the head, or the bricks united to Jesus, the cornerstone, or the branches united to Jesus, the vine, or the bride united to Jesus, the husband. And that union means that what's his has become ours. What's his has become ours. So, so in, a, in a marriage, the husband's riches, if they happen to be rich, become the bride's. The vines, life-giving nutrients, get given to the branches. The cornerstone, shape and strength and solidity goes to the bricks. The head's direction and leading become the bodies. What's his becomes ours. So united to Jesus, his death also becomes our death. We have died to sin in him, united to him, joined to him. Which is what all this talk about baptism in verses 3 to 4 is all about. So Paul says, don't you know, you were baptised into Christ Jesus. You were baptised into his death. We were buried with him through baptism. Three times, baptism. And baptism symbolically pictures the death and resurrection that every Christian has entered into in Jesus. So after becoming a Christian and putting my faith in Jesus, I was baptised when I was 18 years old. And there was a, a Sunday service at the church I grew up at, and I was taken, and there was a pool of water, and symbolically I was plunged beneath the water. I was dying and being buried, except the pastor didn't hold me down until I had drowned. It was a symbol of me joining Jesus's death. I was baptised into Christ Jesus, and symbolically his death and his burial became mine. So united to Jesus, I have joined his death to sin. The death he died to sin on a cross 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem. I've been united to that death. I've died with him. And baptism pictures that. So how have we died? Paul's answer, by being united to Jesus. Every Christian who trusts in Jesus has been united to him. And so his death has become ours. So then... For what purpose have we died? Second question. For what purpose have we died? Let's have a look at the second half of verse 4. So Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, this is the purpose, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united to him in a resurrection like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. 
Just as Jesus experienced a glorious resurrection power of God the Father, raising him from the dead at the first Easter, what we'll be celebrating next week, so also that same resurrection power is now at work in us. Paul says, we've, been, we've died so that we might live a new life. Now that word new, it points to something that is radically new, a complete break from the past. So um, just before Christmas, we had to buy a new car. We didn't quite have enough space in our small courses, so we upgraded to a, a new second-hand, but new for us, Vauxhall Sofia, which has a bit more space. I mean, it's great. It has more space. It has a bigger engine. It's done fewer miles. We can fit more car seats in the back. It's great. It's new. But really, when we're honest, it's just like our old car. It's not radically new. It's basically the same. We still have to fill it up with very expensive petrol that pollutes the city. It's still limited to 10 miles an hour as we drive around because the traffic's bad in London. It still gets scratched by someone on our estate, which is very frustrating, and the police aren't, haven't caught them yet. It's still going to break down, and it will eventually be consigned to scrap. It's new, but it's actually not radically new. But imagine, for a moment, it was possible to reach 500 years ahead into the future. And instead of replacing our old Vauxhall Corsa with a slightly bigger car that's basically the same, imagine we could have replaced it with the car of 500 years' time, the transportation method of 500 years in the future. I mean, who knows? Maybe everyone will have their own personal spaceship by then. You know, you just jump in, you press the destination, and it shoots up into space, and five minutes later lands anywhere on the globe. Imagine if we could have done that, if you could have taken the, the, the power of the future and just brought it into the present. Imagine a, a spaceship with no more fossil fuels, no more stuck in traffic, and who knows, maybe it wouldn't get scratched, or probably, to be honest, still would on our estate. But it would be radically new, wouldn't it? That would be radically new. It would be the power of the future breaking in to the present. And that's Paul's point when he says, we too may now live a new life. The new life we have as Christians, having died to sin, is radically new. It's not just a little bit different, but basically the same. The new life we have is radically new. It is the power of a future age breaking into the present. Verse 4a, just as at the first Easter, Jesus was raised from the dead by the glorious power of God, which began a new resurrection age. Verse 5b, in the future, we will also certainly be raised from death and share that new resurrection age. So Jesus has been raised, and one day in the future, we will be raised. But right now in the present, that future resurrection age power is broken in, and we have a new life, new, radically new. That's the purpose for which we've died with Jesus, having been united with him. We've died in order to live a radically new life. The question then comes, though, how is our new life then radically new? What is different about it? What's new? Well, verses 6 and 7 explain that. So let's have a look at verse 6. Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So what does it actually mean in real terms to have a radically new life? What does it mean for the future resurrection age power to have broken in to the present? Well, let's first say what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that the presence of sin will be totally gone from our lives now. In every generation, there are Christians who have wrongly taught that it's possible, even expected, for Christians to live a life that is free from the presence of sin. 
This doctrine of sinless perfection is not what Paul's teaching. I always enjoy the story told of the, uh, the great 19th century London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who was once at a, a conference, and to his dismay, the conference speaker started teaching this doctrine of sinless perfection. He said that you can be free from the presence of sin, and actually, you, you can join the, the, the preacher himself, and he has entered into this state. And as Spurgeon sat there, he, he didn't say anything immediately. Um, but the, the next morning, when he went down to, to breakfast, he saw that the conference speaker was there, eating his breakfast on a table. And so Spurgeon casually walked up behind him, picked up a jug of milk and tipped it over his head, which caused absolute fury and outrage. One might even say sinful fury and sinful outrage. And Spurgeon sat down having made his point. We're not free from the presence of sin. Sin continues in our lives. All of us know that. We're not free from the presence of sin. Or to put it in Romans 6 terms, teaching sinless perfection now, it confuses the future resurrection that we're going to enter in verse 5. We'll be united with him in a resurrection like this. It confuses that future resurrection, which will be free from the presence of sin, with the new life that we have now at the end of verse 4. This radical newness doesn't mean being free from the presence of sin. But then what does it mean? Well, whilst not overselling this radical newness, let's make sure we don't undersell it either. There'll be more to say next time in the second half of chapter 6. But from verses 6 and 7, it should be clear that sin's power over us has been destroyed. He says it a few different ways. So verse 6, the body ruled by sin might be done away with, or if you look at the, the footnote, rendered powerless. The body ruled by sin rendered powerless. Or verse 6, we should no longer be slaves to sin. Or verse 7, set free from sin. They're all the same different ways of saying basically the same thing. Sin's power over us has been destroyed. Or if I can put it in super simple terms, we can say no. We can say no. Our eldest son now, here, he has fully entered into the, the toddler phase, what joy, and has been perfecting the art of saying no. He actually has a remarkably defiant foot stomp that goes with it. It's not just no, it's no. That's how he does it. No. And when you think about it, being able to say no without facing any consequences is the sign that you're not under someone's power anymore. Being able to say no is the sign you're not under someone's power anymore. So if you, you go back... 150 years or so, to the 1st of January, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation. He said, on the 1st day of January, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state, those people shall therefore and forever be free. He declared that to the people in 1863. Now, I know that the history is more complicated, but imagine the appalling conditions of being a slave in 1862, your master tells you to go out and work in the fields all day until your body is literally aching and you, no one says no, you can't. You're under the, the power of your master. No one says no, that would only bring more punishment. That's 1862. But the 1st of January comes and Liberation Day is here and you, your former master tells you, go out into the fields and work and you look at them and you say, no. And the power's gone, in theory. The power is gone. Now, of course, your first instinct might still be to do it, having spent years and years and years a slave. You might still understandably be scared, but the power is gone. You can now say no. 
And if you're a Christian, Liberation Day has come with the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you can now say no to sin. When temptation comes, we have the power to say no. Feel free to do a defiant foot stomp as well if you like. Sin no longer has power over us. That's how our life is radically new. Sin has no power. We can say no. So then final question, verses 8 to 10. Where is our new life heading? Verse 8 to 10. Paul writes, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So where's our new life heading? We've already hinted at it a few times. There'll be loads more about this on chapter eight, so I won't say lots now. But united to Jesus, what's his becomes ours. We have already died to sin with him, and one day in the future, we will rise to new resurrection life with him as well. I mean, I hope it goes without saying that Jesus' resurrection was a unique event in human history. That's what we'll be celebrating next week on Easter Sunday. But when you think about it, if you know your Bible as well, you know there are lots of other people who were raised from the dead in the Bible. There are nine, I think. Come talk to me afterwards if you can think of a tenth. But I think there are nine. Three in the Old Testament, three during the ministry of Jesus, and three in in Acts. Nine people who were raised from the dead. So maybe Jesus' resurrection wasn't quite as unique as we like to think. But Romans 6, verses 8 to 10, reminds us why Jesus' resurrection is unique. Verse 9, he cannot die again. Every one of those other people who died and were raised from the the dead in in the Bible, they were still living under the shadow of death, still under its power. They did rise, but one day they died again. If it were possible, you could go and visit their tombs. It would not be empty. But when Jesus rose, he rose full stop. He rose full stop. His tomb remains empty. He no longer lives under the shadow of death. His death and resurrection, as these verses say, were once for all events. And verse 10, he rose to live in the presence of God forever, free from the power of death, free from the power of sin. And if you're united to Jesus, if you trust in him, that is where you're heading to. As surely as you have died to sin with him in the past, When your physical body dies, you will rise to new life with him as well, in the presence of God and free from the power of death and sin as well. And it is the power of that future resurrection age that we are certainly heading to that has broken now into the present. And so now we begin to live out what we are heading. We begin to live out the the new resurrection age where we're heading to, a life lived towards God in the presence of God, away from sin. So a quick summary then of Paul's answer to the question, shall we go on sinning? The answer is no, we've died to sin. That happened when we were united to Christ. It's in order to live a new, radically new life. And that means now we can say no to sin as we begin living out the future resurrection age which we're heading towards. That's Paul's answer. Why should a Christian keep on sinning? No, no, we've died to that. It's over, united to Jesus. Sin's power has been broken. We can say no. So there's the question and the answer. And that brings us then, verses 11 to 14, onto the application. What then should we do? Let's read verses 11 to 14 again. Paul writes, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. I find it amazing. Did you know that verse 11, it is the first command in the whole book of Romans? Five and a half chapters, Paul's been telling us the good news of what God has done for us, the grace that he's poured on us, grace upon grace upon grace. And then chapter chapter six, verse 11, it's the first command. And it's a command that takes place in our minds. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to keep on remembering the fact that the, the command has sort of a continuous sense to it. We have to keep on reminding ourselves again and again and again that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to keep on remembering that we've passed out of this realm of sin and we've entered into this new realm of grace where God's resurrection power has broken in. Keep on counting yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As I've reflected on this, I've realised, I think I'm, I'm reasonably good at remembering that I'm forgiven, that God has forgiven me, and that today I don't live under the condemnation of God anymore. I'm reasonably good at remembering that each day, but perhaps less good at reminding myself again and again that I've died to sin's power that I've died to sin's power, and so today, today, I can say no to sin. So beginning each day, I'm trying to remember, today, I live in the realm of grace. I can say no to sin. I don't live under its power anymore. That's what the first command of the book of Romans tells us to do. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's then when it begins, and then verse 12 to 13 shows us then how that works out in how we live. Now, you sort of miss it in the translation here, but really it's military language being used. When it says offer yourself as an instrument of wickedness or as an instrument of righteousness, it could be translated a weapon, a weapon of um, sin or a weapon of righteousness. It's sort of military language because our bodies have now become a battleground. Our bodies have become a battleground. We feel a pull in two opposite directions to offer our bodies towards evil or to offer our bodies towards good. And so every part of our body can now be used in submission to the commanding officer of sin to do what's evil or to the commanding officer God to do what is good. And so Paul wants us to to think about how every part, every part of our bodies can be used instead of for evil, but for good, now that we are no longer under sin's power. I mean, we we could go around, we could begin with with our feet. How can we use our feet rather than towards sin, but towards righteousness? Perhaps it's the... uh, the, the, the person we find difficult and we see them and we come into church and instead our, our feet instinctively want to take us in the opposite direction from them. And Paul's saying, no, no, you've died to sin. Instead of your feet taking you away from them, now that you live under God's power in the realm of grace, instead offer your feet to walk towards the person, to speak to them and show them grace and kindness. Or, or you think about our, our hands. We, we spend time on our phones this week and are our hands going to spend our time flicking through our phone, looking at things that are mindless and not particularly helpful and edifying, just flicking through social media or playing the game that we just waste time on? Or, or instead, are we going to offer our hands for what is good now that we're no longer under the power of sin? 
Instead, are we going to flick open WhatsApp and send a, a Bible verse to someone to encourage them this week because we know that they need help? How can we use our hands to offer them to God? Or, or our mouth as we're in the office, are we going to join in with the, with the gossip that is happening at coffee time in, in the office? Or instead, are we going to speak words of grace and encouragement now that we are no longer under the power of sin? Or our eyes, are we going to be looking at what makes us covet or lust or envy? Or instead, now that we're no longer under the power of sin, are we going to choose to offer our eyes to look at what is pure and what is noble? I don't know where it is for you, but Paul's saying every part of our body is now a battleground. We have to fight to live how God wants us to. Now we're no longer under the power of sin, but in the realm of grace. Every part of our body your body and mine, can be weaponized either for evil or for good. And Paul is saying, present your bodies towards God as the one who's in charge of our lives, as those who've been brought from death to life, offer ourselves to him as a a weapon of righteousness. This week, if you're a Christian, you live under the realm of grace. The posters around your life and my life no longer read sin, death and law, but read grace. In Jesus, we have died to sin. The future resurrection power has broken in. So let's keep on remembering that each day. And by God's grace, let's offer every part of ourselves to God for good. Let's take a moment to pray. I I found an old prayer that helps express the sort of thing that we've been thinking about today. So I'm going to read that out as we close. Let's pray. As those who've been brought from the power of death, to the power of life in Jesus. Lord Jesus, I I give you my hands to do your work. I give you my feet to go your way. I give you my eyes to see as you do. I give you my tongue to speak your words. I give you my mind that you may think in me. I give you my spirit that you may pray in me. Above all, I give you my heart that you may love in me. We pray that we might be able to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.